This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Every time I have cause to delve into the transcripts of Joshua Keezer's trial, the 1994 text speaks to me in different ways. Not in the same way that the Bible or your favorite piece of literature might do. Rather, the trial text always seems to punch differently. Like, I remember this jab, and I remember this left cross, and man, that uppercut was nasty. But now that I'm years into the trial of Josh Keezer, I better understand the combination, how one bob set up another weave, how early round body blows set up the knockout punch. And the transcript, figuratively of course, knocks me breathless all over again. In this episode, I wanted to share with you, or at least emphasize, yet another absurdity in Josh's trial, I wanted to highlight yet another reason why Kenny Holsoff, the Highway Patrol, and the rest of this Injustice Squad should frankly be ashamed of themselves. In back-to-back witnesses, at the end of the trial, Holsoff, representing all of us Missouri citizens, put Josh in two places at the same time. And Josh's attorney didn't even address it. We'll get to all of these details in a minute, but I want to take a moment before we dive into this particular circumstance to kind of address you as a consumer for a minute. And this is somewhat self-promoting, and some of it is kind of humble bragging, but I wanted to talk about the business and journalism side of the podcast world for a minute. Apologies in advance if this doesn't interest you, but I think it's relevant to what you as a consumer decide to spend your time and your subscription dollars on, and it relates to kind of how this episode came about. A friend of mine last week posted an article on a private podcast group I'm in. The article listed the top most powerful podcasters in the United States, and most of the names on that list had nothing to do with true crime, and that's all fine, and I like a lot of those podcasts. But I want to talk specifically about true crime. I've always found that true crime investigations to be the most compelling and meaningful podcast. Podcast medium is perfect for long-form stories and investigations. But anyway, as I scrolled through this podcast article, I came across the name I was hoping would not be there. But sure enough, there she was. Ashley Flowers. I've never met Flowers. I don't have anything personal against her. And I've only listened to her podcast a couple of times, but I'm certainly aware of her work and her popularity. Flowers, along with her co-host Britt Prawat, created a podcast powerhouse with Crime Junkie. It's a weekly podcast so successful it convinced housewives and novices all over the country that they too could attain millions of listeners by talking about grisly or shocking crime stories. This is just my opinion, but most of the true crime podcast community is built on the personality of the host and shock value of the crime rather than journalism or fulfilling a watchdog role. Crime Junkie is consistently ranked number one or number two in popularity on all podcasts, not just true crime. Flowers created a multi-million dollar fortune on true crime with her company, Audio Chuck, which now has several spinoffs. I'm going to give you a peek behind that curtain. Crime Junkie has been accused by multiple people and organizations of plagiarism. In some cases, they've been accused of nearly word-for-word recycling of work done by journalists who have spent months or even years working sources, reading transcripts, and chasing down leads. If these journalists are anything like the ones I know of from my previous work at the Southeast Missourian, they've spent countless 
unpaid overtime hours on nights and weekends working on these stories. Most of them are barely making livable wages. Crime Junkie basically ripped off the Southeast Missourian and work that I was personally involved in when they profiled the Michelle Lawless case. I'm not going to get into the specifics because honestly I don't want to go back and listen to it again. But Crime Junkie used content from the Southeast Missourian information that was exclusive to that newspaper and they presented that information without attribution as if they did the work to uncover it. Not once in the entire episode did the host give any credit to the newspaper that provided much of the information for which the episode was based. And on top of that, Crime Junkie misreported some of it and got facts wrong. So much so that Josh Keezer contacted the podcast and did an interview with them to correct the record and give more information about the case. Josh gave a great interview. If you go online and look for articles about how the world's most popular true crime podcast plagiarized journalists, you'll find that when confronted... The podcast issued sort of a, an apology and said they would do better with attribution. But even after that first incident, they were accused of other incidents later on. This isn't intended to be an episode about Crime Junkie, but these thoughts converged this week as I read through the transcript of Josh's trial again. I did this the same day that my good friend shared the Top 40 podcast list. So now if you're listening to this, you've probably listened to some 20-plus episodes on the Lawless Files about the case of Michelle Lawless. That's a year's worth of work and dedication. What I'm about to talk about isn't the most important aspect of the injustice of this case, but it's content you'll never get from a podcast that simply regurgitates available content. So I would urge you that if you're going to subscribe to True Crime Podcast or support creators with your hard-earned dollars, Go support the in-depth creators. Support the documentarians who are diving into the details of a case and doing work on the ground, knocking on doors, and following the trail. Obviously, followers of The Lawless Files know that I've branched off into other cases, particularly in the Fredericktown area. I fully admit I'm far less familiar with these cases, and I'm not an expert yet. But you don't see me taking other people's work and passing it off as my own you'll hear real people's voices. In such episodes where I might bring attention to a case without my own research, I will always attribute the source of the original material. I'm a person who believes in seeking justice, I believe in holding public officials accountable, and I believe that the role of our podcast is to keep these cases in the public eye, to keep pressure on our public servants who are paid by our tax dollars to solve crimes and to follow and uphold the law. There is, in all honesty, an entertainment aspect to all of this as well. I've been a professional writer and storyteller since I was 19 years old. And along the way, I've learned how to build a story, how to make it compelling, and how to keep people engaged. I know, I know, that's a humble brag, but I kind of feel like it's what I was born to do. So that's the storytelling side of it, but the other side of me wants to find out stuff, to put it simply. And to pass the information along in an informative and entertaining way but also doing meaningful work in the process. By doing so, I hope that the content reaches the masses and that the momentum and pressure caused by my work moves investigations or justice along, or at the very least shines a light on what law enforcement is doing or not doing so the public can take appropriate action. So I would encourage you as a consumer, if you're a person who is drawn to crime content, to find podcasts and creators who are doing more than recycling content created by others. Support those who are in it for more than the shock value. And if your favorite creators are recycling without attribution, unfollow them. 
Support those who are reaching out to sources, making public records requests, attending hearings. By all means, if your local newspaper is still doing this work, please subscribe to them. Ashley Flowers is a smart business person, and she built one of the most powerful podcast companies in the world, but off the backs of real journalists. I consider the first season of The Lawless Files, which focuses on the Michelle Lawless case, a success as it's generated more than a half million listens. But more important than the number of listens, I believe that the fact that the investigation is now out of the hands of the Scott County Sheriff's Department is a direct result of my reporting and revelations. Still, I'm out here making part-time compensation, taking on legal risks, physical risks, and financial risks. Meanwhile, just last week, I rejected a potential sponsor because it came from a podcast that focused on the gore of crime stories. That decision is similar to the reason why I have no plans on watching the Jeffrey Dahmer series. It's why I'm not interested in serial killers much at all except for the investigations that went into catching them. I don't really want to know more about serial killers. I'm more interested in the children who lost a parent and brother who lost a sister. Those people are infinitely more important than the person who inflicted the violence. I want to do my best not to create or promote such content. And I would love to continue this type of work in a full-time capacity, producing more meaningful stories that the public needs to know, keeping justice and victims at the center of my focus. I'm not sure my version, my vision, of what I like in content moves the needle in a way that will make me nationally known or famous in any way. So by all means, if you want to be a crime junkie, that's okay. Just know that these cases affect real people. And the people that are doing the ground-level work that many famous podcasters use are likely no longer even in journalism. Newsrooms across the country employ half the journalists that they did a decade ago. So that's my soapbox. To that end, I'm going to jump off the box with one suggestion. If you've not already done so, you can support The Lawless Files with a $36 annual subscription to ad-free and occasional early bird access episodes at thelawlessfiles.com. And you can also just leave a donation there at the website. Anything helps. So why am I bringing this up and talking about this? To bring this full circle, all of this came to mind as I contemplated just how the episode you're about to hear came about. It played out because Josh Keezer, the exonerated man I've spent countless hours on the phone with, asking me if I could find some information for him. Of course I could. You know, Josh and the attorney who is collaborating with Josh on a book have helped me many times. Plus, because I have years of work invested in this case, I have the documents. And I know where the specific information that Josh was looking for was located within a transcript of more than a thousand pages, which takes up several large binders. It's contained within a transcript I've read multiple times, some passages probably more than 20. And as I found the information, I got sucked in rereading the same passage, which is Chantel Kreider's testimony. But this time in a different context, in the context of the witness who the state presented right after her. It's the latest WTF moment of this dumpster fire of a case. It all has to do with the Halloween party in rural Benton and an incident the same night at a billiard center in downtown Cape Girardeau. Not only could Josh prove that he was hundreds of miles away on Halloween night in 1992, 
but prosecutor Kenny Hulsoff apparently convinced the jury that Josh was drunk and causing trouble at two places at the same time. You're just not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. Then again, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know just how unbelievably believable it really is. I'm your host, Bob Miller. Thank you so much for listening to The Lawless Files. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our only day in court. It is his day in court, and it is ours. Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampire or friend. Why was that? I don't know. The temptation that you may feel is to go back into the jury room and just vote quick, and let's go. But, but I want to tell you something. You aren't just 12 individuals. You represent those people. You represent the small community down the interstate in Benton, Missouri. And those people are looking to you for justice, ladies and gentlemen. So he's like, hey, man, I saw this murder in the news. They don't know who did it. Let's tell them Josh did it. You are our only hope. Never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had We put him at the scene. We put a gun in his hand. We put the victim with him. We have got blood on his clothes. Ladies and gentlemen, based on all of this evidence, I urge you to find this defendant guilty of murder and armed criminal action. Thank you. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, so let's rewind the clock. It's Halloween night, 1992. It's exactly one week before Michelle Lawless is murdered. Don Worley is hosting a Halloween party out in the country. Michelle is at this party. She's with her Sykeston friends Chantel Kreider and Lalisha Odell. Dawn knows everyone at this party, as does her friend Lacey Warren. Josh Keezer is not among the people at this party, but Todd Mayberry is there. At some point, Lalisha takes off in her vehicle and then later returns. Chantel is here with Michelle. People at the party, including Don Worley, see Todd and Michelle kissing at the party. It's a point of interest because Michelle and Todd were not known to be seeing each other or dating each other. You know, toward the end of the party, Michelle tells Todd, okay, enough's enough. It's time for me to go home. It appears Michelle is having fun in the moment, while perhaps Todd was maybe hoping this affection might lead to something else. Depending on whom you believe, Todd Mayberry got a little upset when Michelle nonchalantly decided to leave without him, kind of ending things before they even really got going. 
Lelisha is not here when this happens, but Chantel eventually would tell Lelisha that Mayberry called Michelle a bitch and a slut. Lelisha passed this information along to investigators, who then not only interviewed Tide Mayberry, but they took his blood sample. I know we've been over this before in, in past episodes, but bear with me as we kind of review the information in context. Anyway, Mayberry would deny that any negative altercation took place. Chantel, when she was interviewed by investigators, did not mention that this interaction took place. I'm going to say that again. When she was interviewed by police, Chantel never told investigators that, hey, I was at this party and I saw this guy that was arguing with Michelle, kissing Michelle, arguing with Michelle, and called her a bitch and a slut. She never brought that up to investigators. Michelle wrote in her diary that she was at this party and that Todd Mayberry liked her. Michelle made no mention of any harsh words, being called a bitch or a slut, and didn't write any story about how Todd or anyone else interacting with her in an angry way. In his interview, Todd Mayberry said, yeah, they kissed and Michelle suddenly got up and she said she had to go. And that was about it. By the way, if you're wondering, Todd Mayberry is no longer living. Mayberry was working on a barge line and he died when he fell from the boat he was working on off the coast of Texas. It's been reported as a suicide. I don't want to dredge up old hurts for Todd Mayberry's family. I just know that the people unfamiliar with this case might wonder why we just don't talk to him. I really wish we could. For what it's worth, Mayberry hung around with some of the Commerce Missouri folks, including Kevin Williams. I don't mean to imply anything by that. If Chantel didn't come forward so late, and if Josh's attorneys had time to counter Chantel's statements, they certainly could have interviewed Todd Mayberry and gotten to the bottom of this situation. For what it's worth, I don't believe evidence support there was a big blow-up between Todd Mayberry and Michelle Lawless. Again, Michelle didn't write about it. Mayberry denied it. Other party-goers didn't see this fight that was happening. We're going to get into more of Chantel's testimony about the party in a minute. As you no doubt recall, Chantel told the jury that it was Josh whom Michelle was kissing that night. Later in 2008, she would recant that statement and say she now realizes the person with Michelle at the party that night was Todd Mayberry and not Josh Geezer. Again, we'll get into more specifics of Chantel's testimony here in a minute, but for now we're going to go back to Halloween night and to a downtown Cape Girardeau billiard hall. It's around 11 p.m., Halloween night. A man named Doug Brantley, a 23-year-old college student at the time, and his wife Shelly, along with her brother Rodney Poston and his wife Tracy, and a couple more family members and friends walk into the Billiard Center in downtown Cape Girardeau. They play some pool and throw some darts and are set to leave around closing time, about 1 a.m. For those not familiar with the local geography, downtown Cape Girardeau is, I don't know, around 20 minutes give or take, to rural Benton, depending on traffic and what have you, maybe 15 minutes in the dead of night. As this group is leaving together, a man with some sort of face paint makes extremely rude comments in the presence of the women in the group. The man in the face paint is obviously drunk. 
He's in a pickup truck with a couple of friends. Doug Brantley basically tells the man in the face paint to leave. The man in the face paint pulls out a gun. He waves it and makes threats. The other men in the pickup apologize and zoom off. A day later, and six days before Michelle is killed, Doug Brantley and others in his company that Halloween night go to the police station to make a report. To their credit, drunk people should not be on the streets at 1 a.m. waving guns and threatening people. This is what Brantley writes on November 2nd, 1992, on his report to police. On October 31, 1992, I was with my wife, two brothers-in-law, and my sister-in-law. We were playing pool at the billiard center downtown. When the billiard center closed, we started to leave and were confronted by three males. The only one of these three to give us any problems was about five feet six inches tall. He had dark hair and had his face painted so I could not get a good look at his eyes. As we were leaving, he was asking me to beat him up. I knew he was drunk because he kept spilling beer on himself, so we ignored him and kept on walking out of the building. They followed us and started walking across the street to a truck. The truck was primer dread. It was about a 1974 or so three-quarter ton Chevrolet pickup truck. The truck was a long bed and had eight lugs with white wheels. The back wheels were larger than the front. The truck also had Illinois plates. As the three males were crossing the street, I told my family, we are not going anywhere until they leave. I don't want to get hit. Almost immediately, as soon as I said that, the first individual that I described earlier yelled over at us. He said, where are all the head giving hoes at? I stopped and said, what? He repeated, where are all the head giving hoes at? I said, get in your truck and leave. He said, what fat boy? I said, just get in your truck and leave now, punk. He then pulled out a gun and said, you know what? I'll kill you, fat boy. Bang, bang. The driver then fired up the truck and started to leave. The driver rolled down his window and said, I'm not part of this. They're just drunk. I said, then take him home now. The first male, still with a gun in his hand, pointed at me and said, I'll kick your ass and started to open his door. And at that moment, the driver accelerated and left the area. So let's review what we know. A man named Todd Mayberry, who looks nothing like Josh Keezer, is kissing Michelle at a party in Benton on late Saturday night. A man in face paint is waving a gun in a pickup truck around 1 a.m. Sunday morning in downtown Cape Girardeau. We have a vague description of this man in downtown Cape Girardeau. He's described as five foot six or so, which is several inches shorter than Josh. At the time, November 2nd, a Monday, that is the report that is made. Michelle is still alive at this time. She's dating around, but also in a fierce ongoing fight with Lyle Day. Sometime midweek, most likely Thursday, November 5th, several witnesses observe a fight between Michelle and Lyle, in which Michelle gets out of Lyle's vehicle and starts walking toward the TNT tanning salon. A lot of this stuff doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about in this episode, but I kind of want to give you a, the essence of where we're at in the timeline when these things are happening. Saturday night rolls around and Michelle is murdered. Actually, it's early hours Sunday morning. She sought three times in her car on the I-55 exit near Benton, a mile or less from her home. Months go by. The case goes cold. 
Sheriff Bill Farrell says in the Southeast Missourian that it appears this may be a random killer on the interstate. Yet Michelle was not sexually assaulted, nor was her purse or wallet taken. He says they've checked out all the leads and they have no suspects. Then in March, as you remember, this jailmate from the Cape Girardeau County Jail comes forward with a story that Josh Keezer, this kid he knows, has bragged about murdering a girl in Benton. Three more inmates would add their names to this story, which of course we now know was fabricated. Investigators are working the angles. They hear that Josh Keezer may have committed assault in Sykeston when he came to a house where Amanda Jury was staying and Josh asked for her. Authorities working on this lead from the Cape County jail informants pull in Mark Abbott, who identifies Josh from a lineup months after he said the person in his car could have been Ray Ring, a mixed-race man. And based on Abbott's ID and the snitch's information, they charge Josh with the assault case out of Sykeston. Scott County's court, specifically David Mann, works up the paperwork that involves the governor of Illinois to allow the police in the Kankakee area to make an arrest for assault where no punches were thrown and no weapon was seen. Josh Keezer is brought back to Missouri where he is immediately charged with the murder of Michelle Lawless without so much as an interview of Josh Keezer himself. An announcement is made in the media and Doug Brantley thinks he recognizes the published mugshot as the face paint guy in downtown Cape Girardeau some five months earlier. Here is what Don Wyndham wrote in his investigative report. Don Wyndham was the Missouri Higher Patrol trooper assigned to the case to assist Scott County in the investigation. He wrote, On April 16, 1993, Scott County Deputy Brenda Shivitz, Cape Girardeau City Police Detective Phil Gregory, and I interviewed Doug W. Brantley, he then gives the birth date and address. The interview was in reference to the Angela M. Lawless homicide, which occurred November 8, 1992, on the I-55 Benton overpass near Benton, Missouri. Brantley contacted the Cape Girardeau Police Department recently via telephone and advised them that Josh Keezer was the person who had pulled the gun on him and Shelley Lee Brantley, Rodney Lee Poston, Tracy May Poston, and Jim Gibbons on November 1, 1992, at the Billiard Center in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Brantley had seen Keezer on television and in the newspaper after he was arrested for the murder of Angela Lawless. Brantley made the complaint on Keezer to the Cape Girardeau Police Department on November 2, 1992. A copy of the police report and Brantley's written statement about the incident are attached. We contacted Brantley and asked him about the incident, which Keezer had pulled a gun on him and the other members of his group at the Billiard Center on November 1, 1992. Brantley said Keezer walked up to him and his group as they were leaving the Billiard Center and asked Brantley to beat him up and also asked him where all the head-giving whores are. Brantley said Keezer was drunk and described him as a white male, 5'6 to 5'8 tall, dark hair, 150 to 160 pounds, wearing a gray sweatshirt with front pockets and a hood, blue jeans and scroungy dirty white tennis shoes, and black paint under his eyes. It should be noted that the night Mark Abbott located Angela Michelle Lawless's body, he saw a white male jump over the guardrail wearing a gray sweatshirt with a hood on it. Keezer and his friends walked out of the billiard center with Brantley and his group. 
Brantley said Keezer walked with his friends to a red 1970s model three-quarter time pickup truck with a long bed and Illinois license plates. Keezer continued to give Brantley trouble as he walked to the truck. Brantley said he told Keezer to just get in his truck and leave. At that point, Keezer pulled out a black handgun that had a clip for the bullets and told Brantley that he was going to kill him and said bang bang. Brantley was then shown Detective Gregory's semi-automatic handgun, which is a black 9mm handgun. Brantley said that the gun Keezer threatened him with resembled Detective Gregory's gun. We then showed Brantley a six-picture photo lineup in which he picked out Josh Keezer as the person who pulled the gun on him and his group November 1, 1992. A copy of the photo lineup is attached and the original lineup was placed into evidence at the Scott County Sheriff's Office. The investigation is continuing. Okay, so that's the end of the report. For those paying close attention so far, and as far as I can tell with the reports that I have, the time at which this threat from face paint guy happened was 1 a.m. Nothing in this report shows that the group had previous interactions with face paint guy. Like, it, it sounds like the first time I saw him was as they were leaving the billiard center. Oh, and I found this interesting. In Doug Brantley's original report to police, he said the man was said to be five foot six inches tall. But in Wyndham's report after Brantley's interview, it's now extended to five six to five eight, which is getting closer to Josh's height. So based on Brantley's statement and photo lineup identification, Josh is now facing a third charge. This one, a weapons charge. What a living hell Josh is being put through at this point. He's pulled out of his father's house in Kankakee for charges he had no idea about. Hauled six hours in a cruiser to Scott County to find out he's being charged for a murder of a victim he has never met. And now this. Now he's face paint guy facing a gun charge. Three charges. All bullshit. Layer upon layer upon layer. It's excruciating just to think about. And Josh went through this. I can't imagine living this nightmare of these false allegations having no money. And your grandparents are trying to afford attorneys who have to fight not one charge but three. Including a murder that could very well be a death penalty case. At this point in the investigation, Josh, sitting in jail, knows nothing about this Halloween party. And has no knowledge of this girl Chantel Kreider. At some point in the coming months, he beats the assault case. When in a preliminary hearing, according to Southeast Missourian Archives, witnesses tell the court they never saw Josh with a weapon. So, one case down. But that was the case that brought him into Missouri. I only have access to one report done on this face paint guy weapons charge. It was the one done by Wyndham. The report is fairly brief, but it includes a copy of the lineup police use for the purposes of charging Josh. But the good news is, I have a lot more information about what happened in the pool hall that Halloween night thanks to depositions taken by Josh's attorneys. So I want to jump into that. Shelley Brantley and Tracy Poston were among those deposed. And under oath, they expounded on what happened that Halloween night when face paint guy threatened them as they were leaving. The summary of these women's depositions is that when they arrived at the billiard center, the men went to shoot pool and the ladies went to throw darts. 
After playing darts, the ladies went to sit down at a table near the pool tables and hang out while the guys shot pool. I saw a few guys sitting at a table, including one who had on white face paint, including an upside down cross on his face. They remembered he was wearing a gray hoodie and had spilt beer on himself. They remembered that the face paint guy was giving them weird stares. They said he wasn't tall, around 5'5 five, five or so, if they had to guess. Face paint guys seemed a little creepy, but after all it was Halloween night, and creepy is the goal, right? Anyway, they had no problems with face paint guy until they left, and that's when the threats and the gun waving happened. What's most important here is the timeline. The group arrived around 11 p.m. at the billiard center. The women played darts for a while. They didn't say how long, but let's just say they played for an hour. That's enough to mess up your elbow, right? Then they see face paint guy sitting at a table near the pool tables, and it's around midnight, meaning face paint guy was at the billiard center from at least midnight till 1 a.m. He was actually probably there much longer than that, but who knows? Now let's fast forward. It's the last day of trial. The prosecuted has presented no motive to kill Michelle Lawless and no relationship between Josh Kieser and the victim. A day earlier, Chantel came forward to say she recognized Josh Kieser as the man Michelle was fighting with at Don Worley's Halloween party. The prosecutors present this information in close quarters to the judge and Josh's defense team. Holsoff tells the court that Chantel Kreider has come forward, but he's interrupted by local prosecuting attorney Christy Baker Neal, who says it's not Chantel Kreider, it's Chantel Franklin. She had married David Franklin a few months earlier, a man we now know was dealing drugs with Mark and Matt Abbott, Ray Ring, and Kevin Williams, among dozens of others. No one at the time would know this, but more than 25 years later, a podcast you're familiar with would discover that according to drug investigative reports that Chantel was also part of this drug trade. She would rent hotel rooms in her name so that she and her friends could use and sell methamphetamine. But back in 1994, during the middle of this trial, the local prosecutor knew Chantel well enough to know that she had just been married. But according to the transcripts, Chantel went by Kreider and not Franklin at the time. That's really not important. But in that same meeting, the judge tells Holsoff he'll allow Chantel to be called as a rebuttal witness. So... Basically what this means is the prosecution has already rested his case and now it's the defense's turn to present its side. And after the defense presents its side, then the prosecution is allowed to bring rebuttal witnesses to counter things said by the defense. So Holshoff will end up calling upon Chantel Kreider to refute claims that Josh's attorneys made that there was no evidence that Josh knew Michelle or had reason to kill her. Chantel is about ready to plug two big holes in the state's case. Motive and a relationship with the victim. Mind you, the case had no physical evidence either. Miss Kreider, this conversation, we, we will term it at that, just a conversation. Was that inside or outside the trailer? Outside. And were you fairly close to the person that you identified as Josh Kieser? Yes. In fact, you looked over somewhere. Would you... Would you point to the man that you believe to be the one that you saw at the party? Is he wearing a white shirt with no jacket and tie at the council table there? Yes. Let the record reflect that the witness has identified the defendant. 
Ms. Kreider, after this contact that you had with the defendant, what happened? Was was Michelle Lawless standing nearby you at the time? She was standing with me. Okay. What, what, if anything, did you see the defendant say or do to Michelle? He asked her out also, and she said no. What, if anything, did he respond? And, and how did he respond when she said she didn't want to go out with him? He called her a stupid bitch, and he got mad. He didn't like the rejection. And, and the distance that you were from him, were you able to smell any alcohol on his breath? Yes. At this party, various people were drinking, I take it? Yes. And... And had you had occasion to see people become intoxicated before in your life? Yes, I have. And how would you describe, in your layperson's opinion, the state of his sobriety? Drunk. And were you working at the time? Did you have a job? Yes, I did. What time did you have to go to work the next day? Seven. What time did Alicia O'Dell, to your knowledge, have to go to work? At six. In the morning? In the morning. So as a result, did you stay late at the party or leave fairly early? Fairly early. Approximately what time do you think that uh, that you left? 12 at the latest. It might have been a little bit a little bit before 12, but no later than 12. Did you ever see the defendant that night as you were leaving? Yes, we did. Can you tell the jury what you remember? Yes, I can. We got in the car to leave and Lelisha was driving the car. Michelle was in the middle and I was on the passenger side. We had the windows down. He came up to the car and he asked if he could go, and we said no. He grabbed a hold of the door handle, wanting us to stay. Chattel testifies that it's Josh who was kissing Michelle. Michelle then rejected Josh, and in response, Josh called her a bitch and a slut, and then Chantel interjected, and Josh then slapped Chantel on the side of the head. That's the story that she presented in court. Chantel also tells the court that she had never seen Josh's picture in the papers or on the TV news, despite having testified that she was like best friends with Michelle. Chantel says the altercation went up until the time they left, which was about midnight or just a few minutes before. Remember, it takes about 15 minutes to drive from Benton to downtown Cape Girardeau. Chantel's testimony was a bombshell. It was devastating to Josh's defense. But let me pause the action here and remind you of something I said earlier. Lelisha Odell was not at the party the entire time. Lelisha left to go to Sykeston and returned later. Lelisha told officers this and she confirmed this with me as well. She said she did not see Michelle fight with anyone. So let this sink in for a minute. Lelisha Odell took the information that Chantel told her to police. Lelisha went to the cops with a name that Chantel told her. That name was Todd Mayberry. Investigators took that information, interviewed Mayberry, and he submitted a vial of blood. Again, the name Todd Mayberry only came up because Chantel told Lelisha about what happened. This was in January, some two months before Josh's name was brought up. Now, in June of 1994, Chantel is telling the court that it just clicked when she saw Josh's face in the court that it was the defendant that did all the things that she told Lelisha that Todd Mayberry did. Later, Chantel would tell the court, and me also, 
and she did not know who Todd Mayberry was until months after the trial when she ended up riding in a vehicle with Mayberry. That's when she realized who Todd Mayberry was. She said she feared for her life. Chantel continues to assert that identifying Josh Keezer as the boy at the party kissing Michelle was an honest mistake. She has said that she indeed saw someone in court that she thought looked like the boys at the party, but it was one of the Abbott twins in face paint. The Abbott twins were not at the party, according to Don Worley and Lacey Warren. She said she told this information to the prosecutors, but was pressured by Bill Farrell to go with the story it was Josh, so to seal the case. Yet that's not what's being talked about behind closed doors as the attorneys approach the judge about this new evidence. It was explicitly explained to Judge Stan Murphy that Chantel Kreider said she saw Josh Keezer arguing with Michelle Lawless at this party. Chantel wasn't sequestered with Bill Farrell until the following day before she testified. Chantel claims she knows nothing about the murder itself, but has made claims that her life has been threatened multiple times by the Abbots and others. She claims she still fears for her life, but can offer no reason why she would be in danger other than those associated with the murder think she knows more than she actually does. Chantel's explanations as to what happened, in my opinion, make no sense when compared to other facts we know about this case. However, I will say to her credit, her recant in 2008 was very helpful to Josh's exoneration. So back to the trial. The jury hears this explosive new testimony that rocks the case. Josh is watching all of this. He's 19 years old. He's facing a murder charge. Three times in just a few months, he's been charged with crimes he didn't do. He didn't have a gun in Sykeston. He didn't commit an assault there. He wasn't in Cape Girardeau on Halloween. He wasn't in Missouri on the night Michelle was killed. And now he's being placed at a Halloween party with Michelle. It's all garbage. Lies, mistakes, whatever you want to call it. None of this legal trouble in Josh is based on reality. None of it is true. And he's sitting there facing these consequences the state is putting him under. So now we get to the point that caused me to pick this topic for this episode. I'd never given much attention to the Brantley face paint guy, Fred. To me, it was kind of this non-essential sidebar to the story of Josh's murder conviction, and, and it still is. But Josh sends me a message and asks if I can find a passage where Brantley testifies that Josh has the upside-down cross painted on his face. And I know right where to look. I know it's toward the end of the trial, and I find it for him. But as I'm flipping through the transcript, it dawns on me that the state of Missouri brought in Brantley to testify right after Chantel Kreider. This is how Holsoff was going to show Josh had access to a gun. And in bringing this witness forward to do so, the prosecutor is literally putting Josh Keezer in two places at the same time, neither of which were Kankakee, Illinois, where Josh actually was. So this information isn't new. I've known these things for some time. But to understand that these two witnesses were putting Josh Keezer in a pool hall and a Halloween party at the same time were called one right after another. It just hit different. It's just hard to describe the feeling that I had when I realized this. It's not important in the grand scheme of things, I guess. Surely Kenny Holsoff, the prosecutor, knew. Right? 
He knew the timeline. He knew these things happened on the same night. In the judge's chamber, he said he didn't know about a previous police interview with Chantel where she never brought up the interaction at the Halloween party. So apparently he hadn't read all of the interviews that police had done in this case. But he had to know this. He knew both of these interactions happened on Halloween night. There's no getting around it. He knew Josh had alibis putting him in Kankakee on Halloween night. And he knew that in Doug Brantley, he was about to present to the jury a witness who would provide evidence that could not be true. At least if Chantel's testimony was also true. A few weeks ago, I published an interview I did with Sean O'Brien, who's a defense legal expert. Uh, University of Missouri, Kansas City. And I figured now is a good time to replay a portion of that interview because the things that Kenny Holsoff did to Josh Kieser didn't stop in 1994. He went on to do these types of things again. And O'Brien addressed some of those things. So I'm going to play here about five minutes of the interview that I did with O'Brien. If you've already listened to it, you can zoom through it. But it's just a reminder that there's a pattern of behavior here with Kenny Holshoff. You had mentioned a case earlier, I believe, that uh, Kenny Holshoff was also involved in. Uh, which one? Uh, what was that one? It was the... Uh, that was Dale, Dale Helmig. Yes. Dale Helm- yeah. Can you... Uh, can you um, review with us some of the details of that case. I, I mentioned it, I think, in some earlier podcasts, but I, um, I'd, I'd like to hear from you on, on that case of what happened. Sure. Um, this is the case where the prosecutor made the argument uh, or actually presented the testimony of a trooper who, who, who interrogated Dale about the murder of his mother and then testified to the jury um, that he never did. He never denied it. Um, and sure enough, the first line of his report said um, Mr. Helmick denied killing his mother and said the sheriff was trying to frame him. Um, so there was that issue with the case. And it was really clear to me this was the very last case uh, or I'm sorry, the very last question of the very last witness before he rested his case. Mm. And and knowing uh, Holsoff like I do and knowing the trooper like I do, the drama of it was planned. Um, you know, uh, Trooper Westfall, at any time during your questioning of Mr. Helmick, did he ever deny killing his mother? And Trooper Westfall looks at the jury and said, no, sir, he did not. Um, and that's that's the end of their direct case. That's the last thing the jury hears. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I know that it was planned in that case. Um, and I also know it was false in that case. And it's difficult for me to think he didn't know that it was false. Um, uh, so, you know, that, uh, that's an example of, of Mr. Holsoff's issues. Uh, the case was also reversed because uh, there were other um, shenanigans with the evidence uh, that in, were intended to make Dale look guilty. So, for example, there's a deputy who wrote a report uh, that said, you know, Dale was going to get visitation of his kids 
and he was going to tell his mother this news when he discovered she was missing, right? Uh, and then when he's at his mother's house, one of the deputies says, look, you're getting your kids. You need to visit with your kids. There's going to be a lot of police around tomorrow. Don't come down tomorrow. Um, and then Holsoff asks uh, the sheriff, at any time when you're trying to find Dale's mother in your search and house, did he show up? No, he was never there. He didn't show up on Saturday as if he didn't care about his mother. But the police told him not to come. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so he's really good at those kinds of things. The other thing that he did uh, in Dale's case, um, there was an altercation at a restaurant in Jefferson City between Dale's father, who I've always believed was the real killer um, and his mother. Uh, he she was having dinner a late like after midnight dinner with another man in the country kitchen and Dale's father came in um, uh, you know his his name was Ted so Ted comes in um, and sits down in the booth um, and says what's going on here um, and she said something like none of your business and uh, then he grabbed a cup of grabbed her cup of hot coffee and threw it in her face and said, I'm going to end this once and for all. And this is not long before she turns up missing. Um, and uh, Holsoff manipulated that whole process, didn't present the direct testimony. Um, she made a police report about it. Um, Mrs. Helmick did. Um, and she named her husband and you know did all these things. But he presented a waitress's hearsay testimony that that was Dale when he knew that was not true, that it was oh, Ted. Wow. And so, so, I mean, this is awful stuff we're talking yeah. about. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and he does it not by direct perjury, but by artifice, you know, he manages to imply all of these things, um, and of course, in Dale's situation, he had the misfortune of being represented by a horrible lawyer. So the lawyer literally let him get away with murder. Um, you know, Dale, afterward, I shouldn't laugh about this, but it's this is dead serious. Um, uh, Dale was asked by a reporter, uh, What do you think that Kenny Holsoff should have to do 14 years? Uh, for what he did to you? And Dale says, no, no, no. I think he should do 14 years in prison, believing he's going to die there. That's what he should have to do. <laughs> Al Lowe's, Josh's attorney, completely dropped the ball. He had the information. He himself deposed Shelley Brantley and Tracy Poston. He knew that they had both testified that face paint guy was in the billiard hall for a considerable time that night, and then left around 1 a.m. But yet here we are on the fifth day of trial with Chantel saying she got slapped by Josh, and Josh was running after them as they left the party in a car shortly before midnight. It's exhausting. Bill Farrell, the sheriff, did not bother to question Josh Keezer. There was no good cop, bad cop interview trying to obtain a confession. Bill Farrell pulled his chief deputy off the case as soon as he expressed suspicion of Mark Abbott. Later, Farrell prevented his chief deputy from going to Kankakee to check Josh's alibi. Bill Farrell orchestrated the extradition through the participation of governors of two states, 
He brought Josh Kieser from Kankakee, Illinois on a fake assault charge where no gun was shown and no punches were thrown. Scott County charged Josh for murder on the word of four snitches, two of whom would try to recant before trial and were not asked to take polygraphs. Scott County used the testimony of a man whose story changed at least a dozen times. I've documented that. They declined to give that witness, Mark Abbott, a polygraph, despite requiring polygraphs of other witnesses. Then they charged Josh for waving a gun that he never had at a billiard center he wasn't at. They accused Josh's attorney of witness tampering, saying the snitch's recants were made out of fear. This effectively rendered Josh's more knowledgeable attorney useless in Josh's defense in the trial. They presented a surprise witness who put Josh at a party he could not have been at based on the very witness they were about to call next. They lost grand jury minutes. They withheld exculpatory evidence about a witness list that included Mark Abbott and included Mark Abbott's identification of Ray Ring at a payphone. Like I said, sometimes reading portions of the transcript just hit different. Earlier I compared how examining the trials like breaking down a boxing match where you notice more than the punch, but the combination of punches that led to the knockout, the strategy that led to the end. Pardon the analogy, it's a bit of a cliche. People use boxing analogies all the time. But studying this case reveals more than a well-executed combination of punches. It's seeing another low blow, another shot after the bell, another cut by the laces. Cheap shots being ignored one after another by the referee. When you study this case long enough, you don't just see the combinations, but the many ways that the fix was in from the very beginning. I'm your host, Bob Miller. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. This episode of The Lawless Files was written, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Bob Miller. The Lawless Files is a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. Music was written by Tyler Grafe. Go to www.thelawlessfiles.com to purchase an access pass, which allows you to listen to ad-free listening, gives you access to early bird episodes, and other types of bonus content. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for your support. is in the air at Littleton Coin Company and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. 
serving collectors since 1945.